Welcome back to the Plowcast. Did you miss us? It's Series 3 already, and you are listening to the first of six episodes covering the latest issue of Plow Quarterly Magazine, and it's titled Beyond Borders. We've got a lot in store for you. We'll be talking nations, states, empires, borders, and all things Christian nationalism. I'm Susanna Black, Senior Editor at Plow Quarterly. And I'm Peter Momsen, Editor-in-Chief of Plow. And if you haven't already, you should really catch up on our growing back catalog of episodes. So this is the episode where the Catholics and the Anabaptists talk about how much they love Christendom and how suspicious they are of the nation state. We are going to talk about Pete's lead editorial, and then we're going to hear from friend of the pod, the Bruderhof's favorite integralist, Potter Edmund Waldstein. So, Peter, um, what is this editorial that you have written for us? Um, It's about why you should not learn Esperanto. But, Peter, we used to publish this magazine in Esperanto. Right, which is one of the cool little details that got me on this going. So the editorial is called uh, On Not Knowing Esperanto, obviously kind of playing on Virginia Woolf here. But uh, I find myself fascinated by learning more about the story of Esperanto. I'd always heard from one of my older colleagues, Martin Johnson, about when he first uh, joined the plow team back in the 1950s in England, when we were still located there. One of his first jobs was actually typing out the Esperanto edition on an old ditto copying machine uh, in a farmhouse out near the Welsh border. So uh, I dug into it on this editorial, and uh, it was invented uh, back in the late 19th century in what's now Poland uh, by a a Polish-Jewish ophthalmologist who was living in a town, uh, Białystok, I believe is the way you pronounce it, where the Russian Empire, uh, who controlled the town just then, um, after Poland's partition, had forbidden the public speaking of Polish. And so this was a deeply divided town with four different uh, linguistic groups in it. There was Germans, Jews, Russians, and Poles. And he thought, you know, the way that we could kind of bring, uh, he, he said, common brotherhood. And elsewhere, he, he talks about this kind of peace, um, international peace that would be established in his hometown, but also throughout Europe, uh, would be this universal second language, and he invented Esperanto. Um, So he had this vision of universal brotherhood. And of course, the story of Esperanto is quite uh, dotted since then. Uh, The anarchists loved it. Tolkien loved it. Which is, I mean, that's just because he liked inventing languages. Come on. The Ayatollah Khomeini loved it. Because um, apparently he he objects to the use of English as sort of this international language. Um, And so he says, you can study Islam in Esperanto. And there's actually... An Esperanto uh, Quran? There's an Esperanto um, Quranic school somewhere in Iran. However, there's obviously a huge problem with any universal language because it basically takes away your roots um, in L.L. Zamenhof's terms. You're no longer a Jew or a Pole or a Russian Mm -hmm. or a German, and what have you lost? Mm -hmm. And in my, I just, you know, my unconsidered um, take on this is that you've lost a lot. Uh, And I think of my own kids, it means a great deal to me to pass on to them who they are, uh, not in some nationalist sense, but in the sense that they're part of a story and that they therefore have certain obligations 
uh, to other people and to themselves to carry on that story themselves. And I don't know, you probably, I'm sure you have the same, right? I absolutely. Um, I, you know, I actually, would you tell the story about um, Wilma and visiting the Tyrol? You know, w- what we don't have today is Esperanto everywhere. LL Zamenhof's dream has not become reality. But we do have something that superficially, at least, is very similar to it. We have international business English. So you can go anywhere nowadays, almost, and find especially young college-educated professionals who will speak to you in English, who will actually prefer to speak to you in English. If you go to Prague, young Czechs, you know, even if you know a bit of Czech, will not want to speak to you in Czech. They, you know, are proud to speak to you in English. Certainly that's the case in German-speaking areas. I happen to have dual citizenship. I'm both German and and American, uh, but I have a really strong American accent when I speak German. So <laughs> instantly, young Germans will speak to me in English a lot of the time. So we, uh, my wife and I were traveling in Tyrol, where uh, we have some family ties, and we were up in this little alpine village, Oberbotzen, where my grandfather was born in 1913 on the eve of, of World War I. And right next to us, as we were eating pizza, were a bunch of little kids from the village. And actually, this part of the Tyrol is now part of Italy. Um, ironically, right? Beyond Borders is the title of our issue. Uh, but it's still a German-speaking area, and they were talking the local Upper German dialect, which I can't follow. It's uh, quite obscure. But my wife could, even though this was her first time in Europe, and she's grown up in South Dakota, but she grew up in a Hutterite community that still speaks an upper German dialect, and her people came from this area of the South Tyrol back in the 1530s. And (laughs) she was hearing her mother tongue being spoken by these little kids right by the pizza place. And it seems to me that like the idea of that going away and these little kids not having that sort of mother tongue anymore, that whole that whole people, that whole culture being erased by a sort of tide of international business English, like, you know, Esperanto is kind of cool and weird, but we have this visceral, or at least I do, this visceral dislike of the idea of local language, local cultures being swamped by a kind of homogenized Americanism. Um, and yet there's this weird sort of beauty, or at least there's something that, you know, um, the ophthalmologist whose name I am not going to attempt to pronounce, um, was, was getting at. And even the idea of brotherhood, um, the idea of, you know, there is no more Czech or Jew or German or, um, Russian, but we're all one, like, obviously that has echoes in Christian theology. And so there's a, a way in which this can superficially seem like a really good idea. Yes, let's just have one big global monoculture. Um, and, you know, nationhood, nationality, not in the political sense, but in the sort of the sense of peoplehood, um, we, can, we can move beyond that. Um, and yet, like, actual Christian theology is quite different and interestingly different. Um, so the way that I had thought about this is, you know, you kind of think about all right, so the Tower of Babel happens, and originally there was this one language, and then as punishment for attempting to, you know, build a tower to reach the heavens, all the peoples were scattered and their languages were confused. This is bad. Different languages are therefore bad. Um, And then you've got, you know, 
many, many thousands of years later, you have Pentecost. And on Pentecost, Babel is healed, but it's healed in this really interesting way. So it's not that um, everyone once again is speaking whatever that, you know, original human language was, some proto-Indo-European something or other. Um, it's that everyone is speaking their own language and understanding the, uh, the apostles' preaching in their own language. And that kind of healing is sort of very typical in a weird way of God. God does things like this. And I actually think kind of gives a, is a sort of beautiful sort of picture of the value of cultural difference and, you know, with linguistic differences as, as one of those things. Um, and yet, in the face of that, we still have brotherhood, but it's a complicated kind of brotherhood. Well, it's a brotherhood that takes seriously our difference mm -hmm. uh, and that doesn't erase it, that doesn't turn everyone into the kind of uh, professional managerial class, college-educated, um, from-nowhere type of person that you can encounter, you know, all over the developed world today. Um, when you actually, when you go to Prague, you want to be in Prague. When you go to Bogota, you want to be in Bogota. Yeah. You know, when I, you go to Shanghai, you want to be in Shanghai. Um, at least I do. Uh, I don't want to just meet more cookie cutter of the same. Let's step back, though. I mean, you know, and, and Pentecost really is where this all comes together. The, the church is a church of all nations, that all nations are gathered together and yet remain nations. Uh, and probably Acts 2 will continue to be, you know, the chapter in the Bible that we most frequently return to in this podcast because it should be. Um, but let's take, on this first episode, let's take a step back and, and let's talk about what the stakes of this are. Um, we see around the world various nationalist movements reacting to this kind of uh, homogenizing internationalism, globalization. Um, a lot of those movements are pretty ugly. We see just in the last few months uh, with the events in Afghanistan, in Haiti, in other parts of the world, um, and the debate over who and how many people should be let into the United States or other countries, uh, a pretty strong debate about what roots and identity and preserving social cohesion and preserving national cultures should be, including among Christians uh, and especially among conservative Christians. So I just feel, Susanna, that if you look at global politics and specifically at the politics in the United States, the stakes of the issues we're going to talk about in this series of podcasts are pretty high. But I think you know, you'll you'll agree they're also kind of high in terms of some felt needs in our culture. Yeah. So um, Simone Weil or Simone Weil, who I can never figure out how to pronounce it, wrote a book called The Need for Roots. And that phrase just sticks with me because it's something that people, I think, it's I don't know if people are like noticing it more because they're feeling unrooted because we move so much, because we are less connected to our, um, our grandparents and our great-grandparents. But I feel like virtually everyone I talk to has the sense of wanting some kind of um, stability, wanting some kind of uh, sort of historic rootedness, sense of who they are, sense of who their family is, and really feeling like the lack of that as an ache, a real like personal, profound um, sort of pain point. 
And to say that you shouldn't feel that or you shouldn't have that hunger is like telling a hungry person that they shouldn't be hungry because it's wrong to be hungry. Um, it doesn't work and it's unhuman. Well, human beings have always, I think, mm -hmm. uh, and with all the asterisks you need there, human beings have always had a sense of belonging to a community, to a group. Uh, and so it's absolutely just part of who we are or who we should be. I mentioned in my editorial two books that to me illustrate that. It's uh, M Michael Brendan Doherty's uh, My Father Left Me Ireland, where he speaks about his absent Irish father. Uh, he's being raised in northeastern United States. His Irish father is away. And his search for roots, his learning the Irish language, uh, his desire to pass it on to his own um, kids, uh, I found profoundly moving. And there's a sense in which Ta-Nehisi's Coates, um, Between the World and Me, uh, book from a few years ago, is similarly a father passing on a people's story to his son. Uh, and you see that going back a little farther in sort of nationalist movements of the last two centuries. Again and again, it's people, whether it's Pedro Albizu Campos in Puerto Rico, whether it's the Irish nationalists fighting against the British, uh, whether it's Jose Marti uh, stoking a sense of Cuban national pride uh, to resist the colonialists. You see the same in African countries and Asia. Uh, our people have a story. You, my child, belong to this story. I want to pass this on. I want the stories of your ancestors to live on in you. Those are things uh, that really belong to, to being human. Uh, and yet, in this sort of international business, English, cosmopolitan, professional managerial class, whatever kind of you know, acronyms you want to throw at it, get lost. They have no place. And, and it hurts when they're not there. And I think particularly when you're looking at the next generation, you realize that's really something that you're going to have to reckon with or uh, something else will fill that void, something probably a lot more nasty. Yeah. I mean, I think, again, like, obviously, this can go very badly, and it has in history gone very badly. But I think very frequently, it goes badly when precisely when those hungers aren't met. And when, like, in order to supply a, a kind of lost sense of rootedness, there's, um, you know, people turn to a kind of toxic nationalism. But that's not to say that the, the thing itself is not good. Like, there's a, there's a good there there. There's a there there. One of my favorite books that illustrates this is by Gunter Grass, the mm -hmm. German novelist. Its translated title is Crab Walk. Uh, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's a short book. And really, if you want to understand uh, identitarian movements, particularly in Germany, but more broadly in Europe, you should really read it. It's a story of three generations. It's the formerly Nazi Oma, the grandma, uh -huh. who was 16 when she uh, was on a German boat full of refugees that was torpedoed by the Soviets at the end of World War II. Her son, who is a sort of like a classic um, generation of 1968 liberal progressive who wants nothing to do with, you know, the sort of nationalist um, crude Nazism of his mother. And then there's his own son who reconnects with grandma in a horrible way. Uh, but 
it was actually the son's fault. In a way, for not providing his son with a positive sense of who he was, in my reading of the novel, um, he left a void in his 16-year-old. Which was uh, answered by... Which was answered by the unreconstructed, both Hitler and Stalin-loving grandma. Wow. Because she had something solid to offer. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, the results were were tragic, but it's also a hilarious novel. Um, it's not only dark. I mean, if you think about it as a hunger, people are going to eat poison if they can't get good food. And so I think one of the things we have to figure out is both from a theological perspective and a kind of anthropological perspective, like what is that good food? What is that good kind of belonging? Um, and how to feed that so that people don't go around looking for poison and ending up, you know, finding grandma's old Nazi propaganda or something. Let's take a risk here, Susanna, and actually stake out some positions at the beginning of this series <laughs> of a podcast. And let's go back to the story of Pentecost and Acts that you referenced, the way that scripture seems to both um, affirm roots, identity, nationhood, mm -hmm. most famously in the story of Israel itself, mm -hmm. and yet to radically subvert them. And there's an interesting way in it which the way that the New Testament treats the family um, is pretty similar to this, mm -hmm. that the family and marriage is on the one hand radically affirmed and radically subverted. Yeah. So let's see if we can sketch out a few kind of theses that we're going to explore here. Go for it. We've uh, already come out against Esperanto. So our, our like. Yeah, that was okay. That's our prolegomenon is no Esperanto. But the first kind of thesis is roots and nationhood and identity are good. They're good human things. And then I think our second one, though, to complement that is that there is an almost unconditional categorical imperative you're going to hate that phrase. I, yeah, you're really triggering me with that. For Christians to welcome immigrants and especially refugees. Yeah. This is not one of the maybe if you feel like it things. This is not one of the, well, subject to prudence mm -hmm. things. Scripture again and again says care for widows, orphans, the stranger. Mm -hmm. And that in our thesis here that we're going to get into, um, definitely applies to the southern border. It applies to people coming from Afghanistan and Haiti. Mm -hmm. And how does that fit together with thesis number one, that nationhood is good? And then third, finally, is that the idea of a universal civilization, some people would say Christendom, <laughs> um, Anabaptists might quibble with that, but there's an idea within Christianity of a universal brotherhood of man and woman. And a universal brotherhood of nations, too, where national sort of particularity within this brotherhood is respected. But there's still a brotherhood that transcends that. So our thesis, third thesis, is that something in that Christendom idea... Might be something there-there. Is there's, there's a there-there. So now, have we said enough to get ourselves canceled by everyone? Oh, absolutely. Everyone hates us now. We've done it. So... I, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the refugee part of it. 
because I think because of some of the other things we're going to talk about that we need to keep our eye on what it actually means Mm -hmm. to, quote, preserve national identity by Mm -hmm. shutting people out. Mm -hmm. I remember most vividly, as you know, I spent, you know, a bunch of my life in Nicaragua and I have friends down there. And I remember that one of my friends at a point when he had three kids uh, my age, um, two of them had really severe childhood asthma. He, he was only be able to earn a few dollars a day. His infant daughter was wheezing, gasping for breath, you know, several days of month. You know, it was an agonizing thing for a parent to watch, particularly if you don't have money to buy basic asthma drugs. Mm-hmm. Horrible. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to illegally immigrate to the United States and... At the time I advised him against it, it was one of the times when border policies had just been cranked up. And he asked me, why don't you want people like me in your country? Why can't I get asthma medications for my 18-month-old daughter? Mm-hmm. And to me, that is the kind of question that you better have a daggone good answer to yeah. if you're saying, no, we better throw up some more border walls in the name of national cohesion. Um, and it has to be a better answer than, well, in my old high school town of Kingston, uh, it used to have, uh, the main street used to be hot dog stands and pizza shops. And now there's all kinds of Salvadoran restaurants and that just bugs me. That's not a good enough reason, you know, for a little Melanie Condega not to get her asthma drugs. And I think there's, again biblical reasons to think about this, um, because the prophets tell us that whole nations, not just individuals, are going to be judged Uh by the way the stranger, the widow, and the orphan Mm -hmm. are treated. And when God addresses Israel talking about this stuff, he roots it in his own provision for them in their own distress. So like, you know, he repeatedly says, you know, essentially welcome the sojourner, be kind to um, the refugee because you were sojourners in Egypt. And it's interesting to think about the, the fact that they were not, they did not flee to Egypt from, you know, political persecution. There wasn't a war. It was a famine. And so that kind of sojourning apparently counts with God. Right. The sojourner and the person knocking at your door is almost never going to be the perfect asylum candidate. Mm -hmm. And I know from my own community's um, experience, uh, my grandparents were refugees from Nazi Germany, Mm -hmm. pacifists, Mm -hmm. knocked at the United States door in 1940 and said, can we come in? And the United States said, no, we don't want pacifists here. Um, Very nice that you aren't Nazi, but no thanks. Um, You don't fit the kind of American we want here right now. So, uh, obviously, you know, that type of story, I think, helps maybe temper the wrong kind of nationalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, a good kind of nationhood mm-hmm. is something really important. Mm-hmm. So I know that you, Susanna, uh-huh. 
have just been immersing yourself in your own roots, uh, quite literally. <laughs> I am, um, yeah, I, uh, we, we had a little bit of a uh, post-Ida flood here in New York City um, over the weekend, and I spent about 72 hours, okay, I spent about 20 hours over the course of 72 hours, literally in my great-grandparents' basement, um, which I live in their house, this old family house, um, essentially with like lugging around boxes of books that had been flood damaged. I, I know it's going to be really painful for some of you to hear. It's okay. They were sort of books that I was going to sell anyway. N- uh, you know, none of the good books got damaged. So I spent the weekend with like mud from my great grandparents' cellar under my fingernails. And that is, I, I felt very racinated, shall we say. Possibly radicalized too. Deeply rooted. You Deeply were no rooted. longer just a cosmopolitan. I was. Nowhere. I was no. You were from a very particular <laughs> spot. I was no longer. I was. I was an extremely rooted cosmopolitan at that point. Mm. Um, and you know, one of the many things to think about in trying to balance these apparently competing imperatives of rootedness and you know, welcome to especially refugees is there are all different kinds of sort of rootedness that we need. Like if you don't have a, you know, deep family roots or, you know, good parenting or people who, you know, have given you the sense that there's a, there's a solid ground where from, for you to launch from, um, that's, that is a lack and that can't be made up for by a kind of strong ethnic national culture. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not sure that there are incredibly good answers or simple answers. I think there are some political forms that are more hospitable to good answers than others. Um, I'm, in many cases, very suspicious of the nation state because it seems to me that it is, um, especially in the way that it was envisioned in the 19th century, there's this kind of purifying impulse to it, um, which does want to sort of stop history essentially and say this is this is you know there's there's been um you know there's been all kinds of um sort of travel and emigration throughout and emigration throughout history but now this you know now we stop that now we just sort of go with what we are at the same time you know i'm listening to this peter Ackroyd history of england at the moment and it it is also the case that like Descended, you know, ancestors of the English have been on that island for a really long time, and that seems to me to be a good. Like people having deep, deep national roots in a place seems to be a good, and the gospel imperative and the sort of historical reality of um, immigration and you know refugeeism is is also you know obviously not a good, but like welcoming um, people who need to be welcomed is a good. And I don't think that we can lose either of those. One of the best known exponents of sort of the new nationalism today is Yoram Hazoni, who wrote a book, uh, arguing for it. And he grounds the idea of nationhood in the story of Israel, right? It's sort of the proto-nation, the, the, the paragon of, of what a nation is, um, in a way that is fascinating. Um, and we're not going to get into that a lot right now, but 
one of the things that gets transferred onto other nations, right, is Israel's calling. Mm-hmm. Israel um, was elected by God mm-hmm. for a certain purpose in history, mm-hmm. uh, and other nations, you know, certainly Christian nationalism in the U.S., mm-hmm. you know, claim some of those same promises mm-hmm. um, for for the United States, um, and that certainly happened with other countries too. If you look at the the propaganda spread around, say, before World War I uh, by Christian nationalists in all countries, they all claimed that their nation was elected by God to play a certain role in history. Mm-hmm. Um, nowadays, World War I you know, was so horrible and atrocious and senseless that that whole idea for, for many is sort of permanently marred um, disqualified yeah and yeah i you know i sometimes wonder if there are two we haven't lost something this idea that a nation actually has a role to play uh-huh. um and that it's a god-given role yeah there's a reason it exists yeah. uh and that it might actually help a country uh-huh. to be called back to its specific calling yeah um and that all sounds really suspect and atavistic and mm-hmm. until you remember that somebody like Martin Luther King mm-hmm. did precisely that mm-hmm. for the United States. Yeah. I am. Um, I, I go back and forth on this so much. And I was recently kind of like in a Twitter fight about it. Not a bad Twitter fight. I rarely get into bad Twitter fights. But I get periodically irritated with people who claim that the U.S. was a Christian nation or was founded as a Christian nation for various reasons, including that the, you know, religious tradition that most of the founders like the founders overlapped on most was like Freemasonry. And, you know, there were these weird Masonic rituals surrounding the construction of the Capitol building. And, you know, I would say well under half of them, of the founders were Trinitarian Christians. John Adams was very irritated with his son, John Quincy Adams, when he abandoned his father's Unitarianism to become a Trinitarian. Um, So, you know, I don't think that the U.S. was founded as a Christian nation. On the other hand, maybe it should have been. Um, and if you're thinking about a nation being like having, having some kind of reality in God's sight, better to be a Christian nation who is, which is attempting to consciously, you know, follow the gospel, um, maybe than a non-Christian nation. It's one of these things where I'm like, if you don't like Christian nationalism, maybe post-Christian nationalism is going to be worse. So I think we're going to get into some of these things. I know that we have people from various countries, England among them, uh, that we're going to be talking to about with in, in future episodes about what it means to belong to their nation. But now let's test out our three theses on our favorite integralist, Pater Edmund Wolstein, uh, a monk at the Stift Heiligenkreuz Monastery in Austria, and uh, obviously a Catholic who's able to bring the Catholic social teaching uh, to bear on some of these things. So welcome, Potter Edmund. Um, the last time both of us saw you, actually, you were here for, you are here in New York, um, upstate for the Plow Writers Weekend. Yeah, it's great to see you again, at least over the, over the screen. Anyway, so, you know, as we've been talking about, this is our... Beyond Borders issue, and you've got a piece in this issue. Um, it's a web exclusive titled 
when migrants come knocking, what natural law demands. And um, you talk in that piece about, you know, among other things, about anic- um, about sort of your own experience ministering to um, uh, primarily Syrian, although, you know, other migrants as well, um, pr- refugees in your own community. Do you, Can you tell us a little bit more about how that happened and, and what that's been like? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, in 2015, there was a huge wave of migrants coming into Austria through the Balkans. Um, and many of them went further on into Germany and, and so on, but many stayed in Austria. Um, and the place where the they were first received in Austria is a place called Treiskirchen. There's a huge uh, barracks there, uh, which is used as a as kind of an asylum for refugees. And at the time, I was curate in two of the parishes that my monastery takes care of. Uh, and Treiskirchen is right between the two parishes, so I would drive through every day. Um, and... It was it was full to bursting. The whole town, Treskirchen is a small town, and it was full of refugees. the The huge barracks were completely full. The people were camping out in the garden, in tents, and so on. Um, and so, both one of particularly one of the parishes where I was the curate uh, tried to do what they could, helping the refugees coming in, bringing them stuff they needed uh trying to organize german lessons and so on so there's something about that what you've described that gets at um in a kind of pretty visceral and immediate way some of the big issues that are involved in thinking about um you know the issues of borders issues of nationhood peoplehood um migration because you know obviously one as we know that was a huge um there's a huge debate in Europe about how to deal with primarily Muslim migrants who are not European coming in. And one of the ways that people phrased that was, you know, Europe is a Christian civilization or, you know, Austria uh, has a has a Christian civilization. And therefore, um, we can't afford to let these non-Christians and non-Europeans in. And there is something good about sort of Austrian peoplehood and there's something good about sort of sort of village community life that you know you could imagine would be disrupted and yet there's also something um that you that it seems like we need to work through where what does it mean to be a Christian civilization like does it mean that we have a Christian heritage or does it mean that we're attempting to you know obey Christ in um and, and have the the values of the gospel and the teachings of the church direct our our politics as well as our personal behavior. And that seems like a really complicated batch of questions, but what you described and what you get at in your piece um, seems like it's attempting to drill down into some of those. So um, do you want to like talk a little bit about so the subtitle? of the piece was what natural law demands. Um, do you want to sort of talk about what the principles are of sort of uh, sort of ethical analysis of this kind of thing? What what does natural law demand? What would the church teach us about how to think about something like the refugee crisis? 
there are kind of two questions that you posed to me, what, what the church teaches us and what natural law demands. And they're very much related because part of what divine revelation does, uh, which the church hands on to us, is it reminds us of what God has already written into our nature. That's what we mean by natural law. Uh, the law that God has written into our hearts as his creatures. And the scriptures, part of what they do is remind of, us of that. They also uh, reveal more things that, that aren't uh, in, contained in natural law. But with regard to migrants, it is, I think, something where scripture is reminding us of something that God has already written into our hearts, uh, into our created nature, something that in a way we already know. So in the book of Leviticus, when God says to the people of Israel, you should uh, not upbraid the stranger in your midst because you too were strangers and foreigners in Egypt, he's reminding them of a, a principle of justice that uh, is already inscribed into their hearts through creation, but which can which it's easy to forget because as you say, um, when strangers come into your community, of course, uh, it's easy to be afraid that they're going to take away what we have, that they're going to disrupt our community, they're going to uh, um, they're going to threaten our way of life, and so on. They're going to bring their strange customs and ideas and errors. Um, so there can be a lot of anxiety around strangers, uh, and so the scriptures remind us of the kind of debt of justice that we have to those who are in need. And the the migrants who are coming to, uh, who are fleeing are often coming because they, or almost always, because they're in need, because they don't have, because they're in danger in their original countries or because they are in poverty there or because they're suffering some other kind of necessity which makes them come to us. So something that you said in um, there, I think I'd like to unpack a little bit. You mentioned a debt of justice. A lot of people would think of this as a matter of charity, as a matter of supererogatory like um, generosity. But you're talking about justice. Can you talk about a little bit more about that, about the universal destination of goods, maybe? Yeah. So part of this is uh, that God has given the world to us human beings uh, and the external goods of the world, land and the fruits of the land and everything that we make out of the fruits of the land. He's uh, given these things to us for the sake of supporting our lives, allowing us to live um, and to flourish. And so um, it's unjust if there's some human being who's not receiving uh, enough of the fruits of the land to to survive and to flourish. So normally we, I mean, we divide up the land uh, and that makes a lot of sense because uh, it, it helps us um, do things in an orderly way. But when there's someone who's suffering from actual need, then it's not just kind of uh, a work of um, optional generosity to give them something. They actually are owed a share of the goods that God has given to humanity as a whole. Speaking of this in terms of natural law as as something that God has written is on our hearts, you know, it makes a lot of sense to me. Shortly after um, the first big waves of migrants came in in 2015, 
I was living over in New York at the time, but I went back to the German village, East German village, where I'd lived for, for seven years before then. I raised my family. And although the tide quickly changed in German politics after that, at the time, what was remarkable to me was how there was truly a spirit of Christian love among many very non-Christian people who, from their hearts, recognized the need of the people coming and, um, w in many cases, just went to huge lengths uh, to take care of them, to look out for them, to make, you know, run soccer games and make sure that they were, had a place to stay and integrate them into family firms, offer apprenticeships. Again, uh, in terms of European politics, that's a lot has soured over the last six years. Yet I think from a Christian point of view, actually that first impulse of generosity is the one that we ought to be affirming. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I had the same experience. The The first couple of weeks of the big wave of migrants, you had really an outpouring of generosity and people um, going to the train stations to welcome the migrants and so on and, and to help them. But as you say, that quickly soured um, th for various causes, uh, partly because some of the migrants um, committed crimes and so on, um, which, which of course stoked anxieties. Um, but uh, yeah, I agree. That first impulse is, is the right one. You want to welcome them. It reminded me actually of 20 years ago uh, in New York after 911 in, in some ways. Uh, and there is something in the human heart that responds to those claims of justice that you were talking about. Uh, and yes, then, you know, by the cold light of day, sometimes after afterwards, uh, things can seem more complicated and, and, and life is complicated. We need to talk about the hard things, the difficult things, the, the things that can't simply be be solved by a, a warm impulse. Right. Uh, but it does seem to me that that is, that is something that we ought to encourage, and it's also a, a training in the virtues uh, to encourage that type of response in ourselves rather than a coldly calculating, uh, self-interested one. I was talking earlier about reminding how Scripture, in a way, reminds us of things that we already know. And it reminds us in the sense that it also makes us remember those, um, those impulses that we have when we see people in need. One part of it for the people in this, this German village was that many of them had themselves been refugees 60 years ago after World War II. And so there was a memory of what was done for us when we arrived here 60 years ago and a desire to pass it on to others. And I think, you know, so often uh, a connection to the past, to rootedness, to one old, one's own people's story, which for most people involves actually migration and times of difficulty and times of suffering, um, can ironically be the biggest help uh, to standing in solidarity with those who are outside one's own people and one's own nation. You know, the, the famous in, injunction in Leviticus, love thy neighbor as yourself, there, there are two ways of taking it. One is you love him the way you love yourself, that is, just as you will good to yourself, you will good also to your neighbor. But it can also mean love your neighbor because he is like you. I feel as though in, in the context, like now that we've kind of like described a little bit of the concrete kinds of questions that are raised um, by this issue. So Pete and I had this, uh, we developed three theses Right. We, we developed them on the fly. Just three theses. Very good. 
And we wanted to try them out on you. Part not, of not 91 theses. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, just three. And the first thesis is that there's something good about nationhood and rootedness and national identity. And the second one we've kind of covered is that Christians have a direct duty toward refugees and toward migrants who are uh, strangers because they're fleeing suffering to themselves and their families. And the third uh, is that there's something about this idea of a universal civilization. And we started off by talking about Esperanto and the sort of secular <laughs> versions of this. Right. A brotherhood through um, superseding and transcending national and linguistic differences. But there's something good in this vision of a universal civilization of love, which in Christian history has been called Christendom, and that there's something there. Uh, and so these three theses seem to be a little bit in tension with each other. Um, I don't know if they make any sense to you. Yeah, they make a lot of sense. Or which one of these you'd, you'd want to kind of respond to. Yeah, well, let's begin with... with... We're giving you a menu. <laughs> well, let's, let's use the Alice in Wonderland uh, method, begin at the beginning and carry on to the end and then stop. Um, so let's start with the first one. There's something good about nations and rootedness. Um, the, I think that there's something true about that. Um, I think that, I mean, human beings, we are not purely spiritual beings. We're also bodily beings. And there's something necessary for our spiritual life to remember that we're bodily beings, that we have parents, uh, and that we uh, were born in a particular place, and so on. Um, and there is something very good about rootedness, as you put it, about a kind of a connection to the land, where you're from, the memory of your ancestors, uh, the customs of the people there, and so on. Um, nation, nation can mean a lot of different things. Uh, the The word nation comes from the word to be born, nascor, uh, and so kind of the etymological meaning is the 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 place where you were born, um, which I think is a, is an important aspect of human life. But nation comes, uh, and here, here we, moving towards the, the last thesis about Christendom, the, the, the nation state in the modern sense is something that very much arose um, kind of in opposition to the universal vision of Christendom and as kind of a way of breaking that apart and, and making, uh, having kind of the highest and most important human community be the nation state, uh, like a, a big territorial state with a sovereign ruler and a kind of homogenous culture, one language, um, one poetic tradition, uh, and nobility is found in, in, in smashing all the other nation states and being the top nation in the world and having the honor and so on. That's a problem. So that's the nation state. Right now, there's an older idea of of nationhood that isn't necessarily identified with the state, and of course, the the nation par excellence is is Israel, which for mille, you know millennia did not have a state. 
there has been uh, recently a upsurge of interest in you know what's being called national conservatism. Uh, and you've mixed into those debates at, at times yourself, I believe. Yes, indeed. So what's good about the idea of a nation first? And does that nation actually need a state to be a nation? Yeah, well, I think um, because of because human beings have a, a rational nature, there's uh, we're capable of more profound and also larger community than than irrational creatures are so they're they're sort of gregarious animals that live together in a pack or a group or something but in a human community it's not just a pack it's there's something spiritual about human community about a shared um, a shared life uh, that has a spiritual dimension a common good that's really shared among many persons um and a nation is is one way in which that can kind of community can grow. A nation of people who have a kind of common origin. I mean, you see this in Israel very clearly. Israel is the name of their ancestor, right? The Jacob, Israel, the son of Isaac. Um, he gives the name to that nation because they all originate from him. They're descended from him. Um, and being all descended from him, they share a kind of family resemblance and a family tradition with him and there's i think that's good in my uh essay in the magazine i go into the thought of a anarcho-syndicalist gustav landauer who's a german jewish writer from a hundred years ago um whom i am a huge fan of uh and he wrote a great deal among other things he was one of the key inspirations for the founding of the ruderhof movement actually um but he wrote a great deal about the value of nationhood, but he separated it as a good anarchist would from the coercive power of the state, the the state with boundaries defended militarily. And he spoke of, you know, the German nation or the French nation or the English nation as communities of language and of spirit uh, that actually extended beyond geographic boundaries. Uh now, that can sound all very airy, but I'll just give an example of that. Uh, German nation, for instance, beyond boundaries. One, one branch of my family is uh, from Riga in Latvia, and they were Baltic Germans. And they view themselves as Germans. They viewed themselves as subject somehow to the Holy Roman Empire, Emperor. Even though they weren't politically, they were part of the, the Russian Empire. Um, and they communicated with, you know, the, you know, Goethe and Fichte and so forth, the early Enlightenment figures. They were part of that. They view themselves as part of this culture, this community, this conversation, even though politically what was on their passports down to my great-grandmother, whom I still knew, uh, she was Russian. Um, and so I've been playing around, you know, and I'm not obviously trying to uh, sketch out a new political theory here, but it just is interesting to me that the the language of nation-state, of nationalism, so often can flatten and thin out and actually erase um, the complexity of real human experience in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think that's very true. The, the nation-states have this drive towards homogenization. You see this very clearly in France, where sort of local dialects are replaced by Parisian, French. Um, and But you mentioned the Holy Roman Empire there, which is 
one way in which Christendom sort of tried to get a framework. And the Holy Roman Emperor, one of his symbols was the pomegranate, which is one fruit, very sort of beautiful, spherically shaped fruit. But it's if you open it up, there are all the, there's hundreds of little compartments inside of it um, with all these miniature fruits inside of it, as it were. And this was taken as an image of the Holy Roman Empire and of Christendom. There's a, a kind of overarching unity, but within that, you have all these different nations and uh, free cities and uh, prince archbishops and all the rest of it. I mean, part of what makes the migrant crisis so um, so difficult is the whole question of Islam. Because, of course, Islam, I mean, to me, Islam is, is one of the most mysterious things in all of world history. In many ways, it seems like a Christian heresy, and it sort of simplifies a lot of things about Christianity. And the Ummah is sort of a simplified version of Christendom, where there's this, this drive for uh, subjecting the whole of the world to Islam. Um, and it seems like every time that, that Christendom becomes weak, Islam becomes strong. So it, it seems like it has its origins in the, the division, the early divisions within Christianity between Arians and, and uh, Orthodox Christians um, and, and also the whole Monophysites and Nestorians and all those early heresies. The, the kind of internal divisions of Christendom become so strong there that then all of a sudden Islam sort of comes out of the desert as sort of this... this uh, strange reaction and you get the same thing i mean the siege of vienna in um first the the first one in in the 16th century and then the second one in the 17th century both of the sieges of vienna where the the ottoman armies come all the way up here and which uh during the migrant crisis people were making some comparisons so obviously there are a lot of differences but there again you have you had just had the, the the protestant reformation the kind of shattering of the unity of christendom through that and then the the muslims become very strong again it's a very mysterious thing but i think that there must be some uh providential role for islam in in the history of the world and as you point out in your essay the Muslims, uh, the Muslim migrants coming to Europe, to the supposedly Christian Europe, are coming to societies that actually aren't all that keen on being Christian uh, most of the time. Yeah. Yes. So they're coming. They're coming to to societies that, on most days, view themselves as practically post-Christian. Exactly. Yeah. And in some way, I think that it's. Uh... The Muslim migrants can sort of remind us to be Christian because they come, some of them, many of them, in fact, they come here and they kind of expect to be coming to a Christian country. And then they're kind of surprised at um, some of the, what they see here, the complete moral corruption and so on that is so typical of Western society today. Um, and that can be a helpful reminder to us that we should repent and become Christians again. My favorite story on that front, Ashley, is when I was, uh, new in this little German village I was describing. Uh, and there's about 10% of the population of that part of Germany is, is Christian and 90% uh, post-communist uh, atheists. And there was a little local neo-Nazi cadre in a neighboring village who stickered up the town one night 
uh, and they went after the uh, Kurdish immigrants and our community because we have a, a certain costume uh, with with the same sticker, uh, Islam out of Germany. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Yeah, I mean, you had a, a kind of analogous case, uh, but uh, at the juridical level in France, some of the, the rules against wearing veils that were, tar- were supposed to target Muslims. Uh, so teachers in schools were forbidden from wearing veils, for example. You had all these, these French nuns who taught in schools who had to remove their veils because of these uh, anti-Muslim rules. Well, I mean, it's sort of like it's almost a reverse as well because I I remember thinking like the, all the anti-head um, covering laws that came down in France during that time like this is French laicite, which was originally aimed against of course, Catholicism. Yes, yes. So it's kind of like, yeah. It's- and in many senses, you know, we found with, with our Muslim neighbors there and, and with Muslim friends here, a, a great deal more commonality uh, in terms of a desire to submit to God and to live a life pleasing yes. to God than with uh even nominal Christians uh, who are not interested in those things. I wonder, uh, Potter Edmund, would you be able to do us a favor and see if there's any way of kind of integrating our three theses of rootedness being good and uh, duty to refugees and then something about this Christendom thing, which I should register as an Anabaptist. I I have like (laughs) footnotes and asterisks under, but we'll set those aside. Um, I'll talk about it in a kind of Gustav Landery anarcho-syndicalist form of Christendom for for now, just yeah. just to keep things simple. And I do, and I do have to say, as like I guess the representative of magisterial Protestantism here, like this is exactly what my people were worried about. This like Anabaptist and Catholic alliance going on right now. <laughs> we're gonna we undermine them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that the. The first and the third, um, the first and the third thesis are are uh, can be synthesized through well in in Catholic social teaching we call the principle of subsidiarity, um, and subsidiarity means that you that the larger communities shouldn't usurp the role of smaller communities. So what can be done by the family. That shouldn't be the the municipal community shouldn't um, shove its its head in and say, all right, bedtime is going to be at such and such a time. No, you leave, leave bedtime in the family, right? That's the proper place for that. And so, um, one of the ideals of of Christendom was, uh, and of course, because human beings are fallen in practice, there's there's going to be a lot of strife about what belongs where and who's really uh, responsible for what. Um, but the idea was you can have um, multiple levels of community that each has its own role uh, and the higher doesn't usurp what the lower does, um, but it does help the lower. And when, when the lower is un- unable to, to fulfill its role, then the higher can step in and, and help out. So you can have a, a supranational community, an empire um, encompassing the entire world. Uh, which doesn't destroy nations and say, okay, now we're all going to speak Esperanto, um, but which 
which sort of looks after and, and fosters the nations, keeps peace among them, makes sure that they're fulfilling their roles properly. Uh, and then the nations looking at their the various um, provinces and cities and tribes and so on that make up each nation. Uh, again, not usurping the role, but trying to uh, to foster them. And so that that's how I would see the the those the first thesis that there's something good about nationhood and communities of with common language and history and culture and so on. And that there's something good about this overarching order of Christendom. Um, the the middle thesis that we Christians, especially and all human beings, have a duty to welcome strangers and migrants. Um, part of the reason why we get these huge migrations does have to do with warring nations. Um, I mean, we see this very clearly in, in, in Syria, where you had the civil war, but also now in Afghanistan, where you had the, the, uh, the war against the American invaders and so on. So um, I think part of the role of kind of the overarching community of Christendom would be to, to make sure that people are welcoming strangers and, and in such a way that they can still keep their... The, the identity of their communities, but also to try to address things at the roots and try to um, to make it less often that people are driven from their homes by war and famine and so on. Well, thank you, Potter Edmund. I think that that uh, gives us a lot of food for thought and a synthesis to work with. And this has been a pleasure. Yeah, uh, it was so great to talk, to about talk this, to you. And we look forward to having you on the podcast again. Thanks so much. Woo!